Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. The start of a new year symbolizes new beginnings. Motivation can be a powerful catalyst to pursue your goals and seek changes that perhaps challenge society's expectations. Today's collection of vignettes are about pursuing passions and being instigators of change. We hear from Professor Caroline Nkube, who heads up the Department of Commercial Law at the University of Cape Town, Dr. Hayda Hackman, who is the Director of Future Africa and Strategic Advisor on Transdisciplinarity and Global Knowledge Networks at the University of Pretoria, and Judge Carol Sabir from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court. Our first guest is Professor Caroline Nkube, who heads up the Department of Commercial Law at the University of Cape Town. She is also the South African Research Chair in Intellectual Property, Innovation and Development. She is a member of the African Policy Research and Advisory Group on STI, a member of the Advisory Board of the African Network of International Economic Law and of the Academy of Science of South Africa. Additionally, she is the co-editor of the South African Intellectual Property Law Journal, we start the conversation by asking her what attracted her to the field of law. So again, I'm going to start with a little laugh. I think it's uh, maybe something that's always been innate in me, so I can recall myself um, as a little girl. So I'm the oldest of five. Uh, I recall myself as a little girl writing notes to my parents when I felt that they had treated one of my brothers unfairly or favored another one. And so when I look back, I see, oh, I actually was pleading my brother's ca uh, cases, being an advocate for them uh, at a very young age and seeking justice. So I think this notion of fairness and justice is one that I've always held. And, you know, it seemed naturally that going into a career in the law would assist me with that. And tell us about the role of education in your life. So education is really important. Um, it has been um, the key um, to a lot of my mobility. Uh, you know, you spoke about uh, the three different degrees from the three countries that I've uh, acquired, and that actually helped me to be able to move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, because law is jurisdiction bound. If you're trained in one country, you tend to stay there. But um, if you then get your training from different countries, there's some level of flexibility and mobility that you acquire. So for me, education actually has been the key that has allowed me to move across and also uh, been the key that allows me to link uh, with different colleagues and friends on different countries and continents. And how do you see education as an instrument of empowerment for girls and women? That's a, a lesson that uh, was drilled into me, I think, from a very young age. Um, and so one looks to, you know, your own life and how you've been raised. And so I could see in bold, bright colors that education was what liberated women in, in the various generations in my own family. So my maternal grandmother wasn't educated. She was homebound she, and she always insisted that she wanted us to be educated. I could see that my mother got some education that took us some, some place, you know, and she always said to me, I want you to be more educated than I am. And so I could see in the generations of my own family that each generation did better than the previous one. And the reason for that frequently 
turned on the education that they had acquired. I love that view of building and building for the next generation and opening those doors of, of possibilities and opportunities. Going back towards the, the law aspect, I came across a quote from the then International Development Law Organization's Director General, Irene Khan, where she said, the quality of justice for women improves when women are not just consumers of justice, but also providers of justice. I found it a, a very profound remark What's your perspective on the statement? I, I agree wholeheartedly with that statement because I think whoever is making the call, whoever is adjudicating, um, if that person can relate to the party, so if I'm a woman appearing for another woman before a female judge, um, I'm already, I've already covered a lot of ground because I believe that the judicial officer already relates to the client, to the parties, uh, she understands certain things. And so I don't have to be making a case for certain fundamentals. Whereas if the judicial officer was of a different gender, then you have to start right from the beginning and you might face um, some difficulty in actually convincing them of certain aspects. So I think that women as providers of justice um, are really important. Um, they consolidate the playing field. They, they level out the playing field, I think, for female litigants because they can relate to them. Or even if they don't relate, they can understand and appreciate um, the positions that have been advanced on behalf of those women. Yes, there's that degree of, of empathy and being able to identify with someone more readily when you are perhaps aware of the circumstances and their lived experiences. Our program, Womanity, Women in Unity, is, is all about celebrating women's achievements, as I mentioned in the introduction, in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, sadly, gender-based violence, and socioeconomic class division. Can you tell us about some of the obstacles that you've encountered as a woman whilst you've been building your career and how you overcame them? And really utilizing your experiences in a similar way where we were talking about the generational development of providing learnings. So other women going through similar experiences have a, a tool to combat them. So that's a really loaded question, and that's one on which I could go on and on about. I mean, because once you start to tell the story of your own personal circumstances and your own personal your own personal challenges, then of course there's always a lot to tell. So I'm going to try and do some of that, but also speak generally because I know that not all of our challenges are the same; uh, they're different. So I wanted to say, as a starting gambit, that I would say that the obstacles that I face can potentially be divided into two. So the personal and the professional. And in each of those categories, those challenges would have been influenced by my gender. So when I say the personal, then, um, you know, my stage in life, you know, when I had younger children, that was really difficult because I couldn't then um, participate in, in a full academic life, um, attend conferences, lunchtime seminars, travel. I couldn't do all of that because I had family uh, commitments that I had to, to fulfill. Uh, so you can see quite easily how the personal then bleeds into the professional because I have this home life and these um, obligations, they then impact on my engagement 
professionally. Um, how did I deal with that? It was really difficult, um, but I think that uh, in the end, uh, one of the main tools was acceptance. Accepting that as one goes through life, one does go through certain stages and that you need to accept the stage at which you are, young mother, young children, and then just operate within the realm of what is possible within that stage. And as you progress to other stages, then you can broaden your activities. And so I think that has been quite key for me, acceptance. Um, secondly, also building support systems because these are important. Uh, one of the biggest challenges for me was, of course, the, the movement from one country to another, uh, immigration and coming to South Africa and then growing this family uh, quite frankly, just on my own, just a nuclear family, nobody else. So we had no support and that was really difficult. And so we had to build um, friendships and support um, to assist us in, in raising our children. So acceptance and support networks, I think, would be the key. Thanks for sharing your experiences. And as I was listening to you, you know, this is one of the realities that many women face on how you juggle and manage between raising your children and then pursuing with your, your career. And I often wonder if there's perhaps a, a way of almost being late bloomers that we can look at sort of delaying those career promotions after motherhood, although that never ends because they will forever be your children. But I wonder if there are some types of, of interventions where we're not left behind the, the curve of, of male counterparts, that we just go on a little bit longer. I'm not sure that there actually are intentional interventions uh, that make sure that women don't get left behind. I think that we are faced with the reality that we do get left behind uh, in those formative years uh, of you know, our children's lives, for example. Uh, some of us are coping with uh, looking after aged parents. Whatever the challenge is that's personal that a female has to encounter, I think that we do get left behind. Um, and then we just have to speed up at later stages to catch up. Yeah, and you're so right that that catch-up process might not happen because when you are done with the lower end of the spectrum of your own children, then you have to contend with aging and ailing parents at the other end of the spectrum. And I loved what you said about building in support networks that may not directly be family but it could be um, through friends or establishing some type of support structure to benefit women. 100%. Uh, and I think that um, in those circumstances or places where there aren't intentional interventions that are provided, for example, by one's employer, that of course then um, it's up to us to build our own networks and to build our own interventions um, to help each other along. Given what you know now and your lived experiences, if you had a, let's say, a, a magic glass ball or globe to look into the future for women, what do you think we need to do to build a more egalitarian society where no limits are imposed on women? One of the main things we probably need to reconsider or reconfigure is our perceptions of, of gender roles in families, in society. Uh, perhaps we should be thinking about uh, more fair ways of actually uh, bearing those burdens, whether they be childbearing or looking after 
old or ailing family members. So I think that would be key, uh, a more fairer distribution of, of some of these um, obligations that we have in our personal lives. And some of those elements are so culturally ingrained into our, our psyche and stereotypical roles that we have been playing as women and have kind of been programmed. That's true. Um, and I hope you can uh, hear the, the smile uh, in my voice. Uh, I'm thinking about this now almost cliched um, image that we see often. I see often on social media, you will see a picture of a professor, male or female, carrying a baby. And then the, the caption will be, oh, I had no way to leave my baby. So I brought the baby to class and my professor uh, is carrying the baby. So I, you know, it's, it's, it's cliched, it's, it's sweet, it's kind. I think that uh, what needs to happen is, is more than those individual um, displays of empathy and kindness from the individual professors uh, who take on their students, uh, children in class to relieve them. Uh, maybe we should have on our campuses uh, places, spaces where our students can bring their children uh, and so they can attend classes uh, unencumbered. So that would be, for example, one of the intentional interventions that uh, we might bring into academic spaces. And why not? It's such a practical idea. Yeah. Why not? Now, lastly, as we close out our conversation, please can you share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to girls and women in the continent who are listening to us? The moment is ours. The moment is yours. I should say yours because I think I'm no longer that young anymore. So when we talk about stats and we talk about the, demo, the demographics of, of our continent, Africa, we find that by and large, it is a youthful continent um, and that it has a majority of females. And so the opportunity is ours, is yours. Uh, we're in the majority. And when you start to consider business and who's driving business on the continent and who's leading when it comes to innovation, you find again, it's women and youth. And the hopes of the continent, in fact, are pinned on women and youth. When you look at the African continental free trade area and, and the messages it's trying to push across, it keeps on saying, um, the secretariat or the leadership um, keeps on saying, we want more women and youth to actually start to trade across the continent. And so it is in that sense that I say um, that the moment is ours, is yours. If you're young, if you're female, the continent is wide open. Why don't you reach out? Take it. That is such a fantastic message. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was Professor Caroline Nkube, who heads up the Department of Commercial Law, the University of Cape Town. You're welcome to share your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Our next guest is Dr. Hayda Hackman, who is the Director and Advisor on Transdisciplinarity and Global Knowledge Networks at the Future Africa Institute at the University of Pretoria. Dr. Hackman shares some insight into her leadership style, which includes being inspirational, thinking big, being an effective enabler and decision maker, being authentic, connecting to people on a human level, and leading by example. Before we go into a conversation about leadership, which is incredibly important, especially if we're looking at how women can start taking a, a more active role. A few things that have always struck me in conversations that we've had with women in all sectors of society 
and it also dovetails with some of the work that you've been talking about today, is that apart from having your professional course of action or your career trajectory in place, that the reality is that women have to also contend with social and cultural constraints, whether it is about a motherhood or looking after ailing parents. These are burdens that women bear the brunt of. And another factor that has come out in conversations from an academic point of view is that often there will be scholarships or bursaries that are available, but there's an age cutoff or criteria. It's interesting that you raise that because when I did go back and after the typing pool to do my undergraduate work at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, I was at the end of that, I was given a scholarship to study overseas. And then the scholarship committee realized that I was too old because I was a mature student. But we, we fought that on the basis of this is discriminatory against women. And I'm happy to say that I did get the scholarship and that the rules were changed. So this is a fundamental issue. And just the other day, we were talking internally at Future Africa about how do we define early career researchers? And we agreed there should be no age restriction to that. It's about where you're at in your career. And this is partially to cater for the kinds of obstacles and realities that you are referring to when it comes to women. But it also makes me think that in terms of, you know, what are the, the really key drivers or factors of success to have a successful career and to become a leader in a sector, in my case, in science. You know, for me, it was about passion, being passionate about science and, and its ability to um, have positive impact on the world. It's about courage. But as a woman, I think what was critical for me was the strong support networks from family and friends. Networks that allowed me to make choices that did not necessarily fit the pattern. I didn't get married. I did not have children, et cetera, et cetera. Those choices that you make as a woman that can affect how you fit into your society. And we all have this overwhelming need to belong, right? Without the support, unconditional support of family and friends, those would have been difficult choices, lonely choices. And so I think, you know, that connectedness and having sounding boards, advisors who can refuel your energy when you're making those difficult decisions is critical for women. And that's the issue of not having to conform to stereotypes, but making Correct. your own choices and having the freedom to do that. Correct. For women, those choices start when we go to school. If I think about how are we going to encourage more women to enter into science and technology or to see the leadership career opportunities that there are, it starts at school. It's about education and it's about training the teachers to foster that kind of awareness and hunger and confidence to say, I too, can pursue a career in science and technology. Whilst we're talking about leadership, and you've mentioned aspects of some of your drivers of being passionate, being able to make a positive difference and having a really strong support network, 
Can you tell us, as a female leader, what are some of the leadership strategies that you've found to be most effective? It's a very interesting question, and I think that it's dependent very much on the sector that you're working on. Leadership strategies will invariably change. But for me, given you know, my work in international science, where collaboration and having to convene across geopolitical boundaries, across scientific disciplines, bringing people together, that was my field of work, really science diplomacy. And in that regard, I think for me, the key elements of the strategies are on the one hand, to be inspirational. That means think big, ask why not, what if, you know, go all out, go for the big vision. So to be visionary, to understand what may be possible and to inspire teams, to inspire people, to share that level of ambition, I think for me that is key. But then it goes hand in hand with being an effective enabler. Enabling for me involves the ability to be open-minded, to listen to everyone, but not to be scared to make decisions. So to be an effective decision maker. Because actually you enable people by giving clear direction, clear decisions. It also means not being threatened by new talent. It's creating opportunities, creating safe spaces for younger people who share your vision, who are inspired, creating the safety networks for them to gain experience, to make mistakes, to have their backs. So to be an effective enabler is actually comes with a dimension of skills and attitudes that I think are required to meet the ambition that you've set and, and to allow people who are inspired to reach those ambitions. I would say a third thing for me is to remain authentic, to not pretend to know everything, to not speak on things that you are not familiar with. And so just authenticity and connecting with people at a very human level. Again, it's about deep, meaningful collaboration. And so a sort of a collaborative style of leadership is what in my case, I think, if I look back, and this is not something you reflect on on a day-to-day basis, you kind of muddle through the job. But if you think back, it's those elements of inspiration, enabling, remain authentic, connect at a human level. Thanks for sharing your points. I often find in these conversations, everybody brings a a different mix of what works for them. And conceivably, this is also about the different disciplines that people are involved in. Oh, and I should add, lead by example. Don't be afraid to roll your sleeves up, get your hands dirty. You know, it's teamwork. You've made it. You've done this by muddling through the process yourself through trial and error. What do you think we can do to help build this capability for more women so that they don't have to muddle through and they can follow a trajectory and make it? I think in addition to, you know, clearly policies at all levels, from government levels to institutional levels, and advocacy around policies is obviously central. And a lot of that is happening. But I think in addition to that, it is about role models. It is about creating communities of 
practice of alliances, building the critical mass. You know, if I think back of the early days of my career in a leadership position, I would have appreciated being connected to other women in leadership positions in my field. And so I think those alliances, communities of support, of inspiration, of enabling are very important. There are more and more women who want to get engaged in giving back. And I think that's important. In addition, back to the point of it's when young girls at school make choices. Their teachers are critical role models and influencers at that formative stage. So there's something there around education, education, education. That's a program of work. You know, it links the gender equality work we want to do with the youth empowerment education um, work we want to do. So it's about mainstreaming the awareness of gender inequalities throughout our work, throughout every sector of work. Mm. The choices you make when you're, what, 15, 16, have an impact on the rest of your life. They do. They do. You mentioned teachers as being important role models. Could you tell us about some of the women who've been role models or influences in your life? So it's maybe a very obvious thing to say, but my mother. And it's simply about having observed how she navigated adversity in life. Very, very strong woman. In addition, I would say peers, my friends, my colleagues, It is about observing and understanding how they manage daily realities, daily obstacles, how they create incentives for themselves, for others, how they heal and nurture others in order to heal and nurture themselves. So just remarkable, ordinary women that I've had the privilege of working with. And I do really make point of understanding their journeys and learning from their journeys. That brings in this dimension of reality and authenticity. One question that I ask all my guests on the show is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success. What have been some of your key drivers for success? I would go back to what I've already said. So at a personal level, it's my passion Where that comes from, goodness knows, but it's passion. It's a degree of courage. It's that notion of hunger for learning. Again, underlying, I think, the, the support networks, the wisdom of mentors, male and female, those have created the framework within which my passion, my courage, my hunger for learning have been nurtured and have been by others. It's again the importance of our interconnectedness with others and how if we, by contributing to their journeys, we are advancing our own journeys. That was Dr. Heide Hackman, who is the Director and Advisor on Transdisciplinarity and Global Knowledge Networks at the Future Africa Institute at the University of Pretoria. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Our next guest is High Court Judge Carol Sabia, who hails from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court. 
We start the discussion with an emphasis on law as an instrument to bring change, particularly in terms of gender equality gains. When you recognize the power that you have, then you must make sure <laughs> that you use your powers for good, as it were, um, and, and not to advance yourself, um, but to advance the interests of, of society. Thinking about that notion of power, I think that the ability to change legislation or to develop laws is very important. And if we think about women in particular being able to advance their rights, it's sometimes hard to realize that only 26 years ago in 1996, when the Bill of Rights was introduced that all women in South Africa were formally recognized as equal citizens. So in your view, what would you say are some of the important equality gains, recent equality gains, that women have attained? Um, there are the small things that people are not aware of. For example, Black women couldn't own property. <laughs> you, you needed your, your husband um, to co-sign and you needed to have a husband in order to have um, property. So it's things like that. Um, one of the interesting things that I saw as an equality right that maybe other people won't see it that way was um, I remember when we had the first female primetime newsreader. <laughs> And that happened to be a black woman as well. So that's that's a small thing, but it's a big thing. It happened at the time when I was in university. Our white male lecturer had already told us that whatever happens, there are things that will just never change. And then in that year, and, and he had even spoken about um, women, we must watch the news and we'll see that um the women that are news readers are not in the prime time news. They are in the other news that people won't really watch, but not in the prime time slot. And then there was a lady, Kanye Jomo. People know her for her later achievements. But for me, her biggest achievement was when we saw her, a black Zulu woman, reading English news at prime time. <laughs> so um, that's that's just one of those things that I saw as a huge thing that, wow, so even this is now open to women <laughs> because women were not credible. So you couldn't trust women to deliver the real news. It needed to be done by a man wearing a tie. So there are those things. And then there's, of course, the, the equal pay um, that we now get. There's the now extended maternity benefits that people have. And um, the fact that we can have this discussion <laughs> um, and, and speak about women issues and speak about things that are meant to empower other women, that alone is, is, is an advancement. So we've gained a whole lot of rights that, are, that were usually not available um, to women. And um, women own soccer clubs. Women are CEOs. Um, and I don't want to downplay the role of women. Women can now choose 
whether they want to stay at home or go to work, um, which wasn't an readily available option back in the day. So those are some of those um, that, that, I, that I have seen. And the recognition that there are women-headed um, households and recognizing the assistance and their validity, their rights to own, again, even to own property, but even to inherit, um, because th- that was also not a thing. My own grandfather would have left his property to his son um, if the son predeceased him to the son's son and not the gold children that he had. Those are wonderful examples within this generation that have changed and it just shows such a big impact. And for me, the importance of law, the importance of taking equality seriously. And as you said, for instance, with Kanye Nglomo, I mean, she was a young woman at the time when she was on the screens and she brought in a role modeling effect to the entire country of being able to look on the screen seeing somebody that looks like them and acknowledging that you can do alternative things and women can be everywhere. Yes. Today, we're talking to High Court Judge Carol Sabir from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Judge Sabir, we've spoken in the previous segments a lot about your career, a lot about the legal system itself. Turning towards more of a personal point of view, the juggle between developing a successful career and maintaining a household, being a mom, being a wife, being an active member of family has always been a controversial issue for women. Firstly, please tell us how you see this. Um, well, it's a rewarding thing when you are able to achieve uh, a form of balance. Um, but I must say, there's a lot of hurdles um, that you come across. When I started out as an advocate, I was told that because I already I was married when I started out as an advocate, I was told, well, you must prepare yourself. Either you will thrive as an advocate or you will thrive as a wife, but you won't succeed at both. And even on the, in that year, two of my colleagues, uh, female colleagues got divorced. And I was told it's the nature of the work. You can't have it all. And um, if you are a woman at the bar, you cannot have a family as well. <laughs> so it, it, it wasn't a great start, a nice welcome. But um, what I did find is that it is possible. Um, My sister does not agree with me that you can have it all. But I say that you can um, simply because it's a question of your priorities, changing priorities in the stages of your life. For example, when your children are small, you can actually achieve more in your professional life because during the day they are at school, you are at work working. And because when you get home, you get home and you are a mom, you are a full-time mom when you get home and you do your supper, you do homework, you do everything, but then they go to sleep. 
And when they go to sleep, you put in an additional hour of work to make sure that you are up to date with your work. And you put in another hour of um, either in the morning or in the evening, focusing on your interest, something that is um, rewarding to you so that you don't feel that you are left behind as an individual. It's not an easy thing to do to achieve the balance, but it's, um, I found that when you have a, a good support structure, my husband is grudgingly supportive <laughs> because he understands that my growth is our growth, but he understands that it means giving up some of the time that would be his time for the growth of, of the family. But it's not a giving up of time. It's a, a question of making sure that you prioritize different things at different times to ensure that everything is fed and that you don't feel, even for yourself, that you achieved success at the expense of family or um, or the other way around. So I, I found it doable as long as you prioritize and you are flexible in changing what must take top priority at a given point. That's such a great learning. And what I always appreciate about the show is that everybody brings a different formula to the table about how they cope. And I think that your approach is really interesting of reprioritizing and that when you are in one node that you are a hundred percent in that node and that's the focal point and then you move on to achieve your your other elements. I want to ask you about your personal journey and some of the factors behind your success. Many of our guests who've reached tremendous achievements in their lifetimes speak about faith, focus, discipline and values. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of your key drivers to success? Um, it's not in order of um, importance, but um, the, the fear of failure. I, I don't want to fail. <laughs> so that means that I always put, I always do my best because I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail because of how it feels for me, but also because my failure is never about me just failing alone. It always has an, in, an impact on others as well. My faith is a pivotal part of me. Um, I pray every day. I pray about how I treat people that come to court. Um, I, I pray to treat everyone with kindness and respect. Um, for me, the other thing is a, a good support structure that shares the vision. We are with a person that is making a change. Those people that remind me that it's important what I'm doing and it's important to not only myself, but for the millions of people <laughs> whose lives we are changing with everything that we do. Those are the main things that, that have been um, my driver and to show that it's doable. You know, when I was appointed as a judge, a friend of mine phoned and said, our daughters now have a role model. <laughs> that was such a scary but real thing for me to realize that as I mentioned, the Kanye Zomos, 
there are other people that know where I come from. To see me as a judge makes it a reality for them as well. Judge Sabir, as we close out today's conversation, please can you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and women who are listening to us? Well, um, I hope this is inspirational. (laughs) For me, one of the biggest things was not accepting when people say you can't. That is a thing that I would want to instill in every person. Never accept a, a different voice telling you what you cannot do. Believe in yourself and do your best, whatever the circumstances. And when you fail, and, and please be clear, I didn't say if you fail. I said, when you fail, cry and then pick yourself up. And sometimes it might mean go be, going back to the drawing board. Sometimes it might just mean picking up and just going at it again. So, um, but never accept the, 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 the failure as the, the final answer. Um, you are able. No one can tell you what you are not able to do. You are able to do everything that you put your mind to as long as you work hard at it and as long as you are determined and you are doing it for the right reasons. That was High Court Judge Carol Sabir from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court. We hope today's selection of stories from female leaders inspires you to own your own journey. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity. Best wishes for 2023. Happy New Year.